Welcome to Inside America's Minds, a series of original podcasts created and hosted by clinical psychologist, Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. Inside America's Minds features fascinating conversations with everyday people like you and me and their extraordinary experiences. Join us for this thought-provoking episode on Inside America's Minds. Welcome to Inside America's Minds. Today I have with me a very special guest, Roy Cook, author. Roy, fool's errand. I mean, it's renowned worldwide, an incredible book. You're also a philanthropist in addition to being an author, an engineer, physics, mathematics, a mentor, former employee of Procter & Gamble. That was a very interesting story too. I've done a lot of research on you and I'm so privileged to have you on the show. Your life has been amazing, incredible. And why I thought it was so important to share your life with America is because you represent the life, especially in the earlier years of so many Americans because of the challenges you had. So you started your own company and then retired after 11 years after you left Procter & Gamble. And you've done so many interviews. For those of you listening, you can also catch this interview with Roy on YouTube. But there were some of my favorite interviews where we really got to see the glimpse of the amazing human being you are and where you were and where you are. So I wanna thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jody. So I wanna start with what I read. You did a phenomenal interview on the author hour with Drew Applebaum. That was on uh, January 13th, 2021. Mm -hmm. And you had already written your book, Fool's Errand. And you say in there, you discuss how you were a failure until your mid-30s. You say, I was not really a good person. I had bad things that happened. And I would go out on the weekend, drink too much, drive through highway signs on the freeway. I was a failure until mid-30s. I was broke. I was selfish. I was borrowing money from women. I dated who were making less money than me. And here you are today, a success story, an American success. So I want to hear a little bit about that. And we're also going to talk about your book, A Fool's Errand, what goals are falling short and what you can do about it. But first, I want to know about you in the earlier years. Okay. Well, I grew up in Portland and then went to school at Oregon State in engineering physics. And that was a mistake. Uh, what I wanted is I, I said, what's the toughest field that you can get? Well, it's engineering physics. That's rocket science. Oh, wow. And I found out why, uh, why I later di didn't appreciate it. And that 
you had no social time at all. You're taking the theory courses in physics and math and everything, mechanical engineering, electrical. And so it was extremely difficult. And I just looked at it like when I went into mountain climbing because I wanted the challenge. Later, I found out that was foolish. I mean, to have no social life in college is not a good thing. So I, um, I decided I wasn't gonna go into that field. I didn't wanna be in rocket science. And I interviewed with Procter & Gamble and Procter & Gamble was the apple of the day. I mean, that was the best company to work for in the early 60s, according to all of the um, uh, people that I talked to. So, so can I, was, I interrupt uh, you a minute, Roy? Sure. I, I do that a lot. So what does a rocket scientist do? Because a lot of us know the joke, oh yeah, it's not rocket science, but what no. exactly does a rocket scientist do? Well, if you've ever seen those NASA shows when a rocket's taking off or coming back and they're talking to the, the guy there, those are all engineering physicists. In other words, this uh, is they, Houston. Yeah, they're the okay. ones that design these rockets so they can take off uh, at the right time. They're going to make it into orbit and go on to and all those systems that are on there. It's, you can imagine you have to be pretty bright cookie to be in that field. And, uh, and probably you're, you're really devoted to the field. The average person um, couldn't do something like that. And I found out why when I went to school. I mean, it was tough. There were no extra courses. They were all the toughest courses in their field. And I thought, boy, this isn't for me. So, And, and then you, you, you happened to slip in there. So I'm going to have to listen really carefully to you that you climb mountains. I mean, that's my passion. I live here in Colorado. Oh. So, so you climb mountains as well. So it sounds like you have always been the individual that wanted to take on the most challenging element in life, whether it be education, physical, does that sound right? Yeah, I, you never know why you have an interest. I mean, somebody, somebody said, well, why did you have an interest in that? Well, I, I like the beauty of nature. I've always liked to hike a lot. My favorite spot on earth is in Paris or, or someplace in Spain, it's Yosemite, the Yosemite Valley here. Uh, and I've been there maybe 20 times and I've, I've gone off trail and stuff. But when I was younger, I did climb mountains and there were guys in my fraternity who wanted to do that. So I learned from somebody that was good and then I led some, some kind of expeditions uh, uh, in, in uh, climbing glacier peaks like Mount Hood, oh Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams. Um, that isn't like climbing in the Himalayas where you're right. risking your life. Well, you've got to be careful because bad weather, you can have a perfectly sunny day and there's a cloud over that mountain. That, that may be dangerous to go up there. There may be a storm or a whiteout. And when you're in a whiteout, you can't see. And right. somebody can say, what's the big deal? You just walk down. You know, when you're on a mountain, you don't know which way down is. And that's you, the you can be climbing up and still have to go down a while right. or you can go deep into uh, uh, some fall into a crevasse which is a uh, exactly hidden by by fresh snow and you're gone you know unless you're roped in so, so that is so something... I did that and I did hiking and I, I, okay. I I've, I've had a lot of interest for, for some reason in my life I've wanted to um something I'm going to stop an alarm I've had a lot of interest like I wanted 
a major goal in my life for my wife and I is to understand how the West became dominant. Okay. So all of our travels have been in an area from, let's say, Kazakhstan to Finland, my from gosh. Russia uh, and down to North Africa, all of us. So all of our travels. So that means I will miss exciting places like Korea and China. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to go to Hawaii or the Bahamas because those areas did not play a critical part in the development of Western civilization. So and that fascinates you, history, yeah. Western civilization. So I'm going to bring us back. I want to go back mm -hmm. to the time in your life that you state you weren't a really good person. And I want to know how you got from there to where you are today, your book, The Core, Core Values. Okay. And I'm going to quote you. I am going to quote you later on, if that's okay with you. Sure. Well, I think when I was in college, for whatever reason, I didn't drink. But when I got out of college on the weekends, uh, in order to get enough confidence to be around the women, I, I think that was my reason, I would have a little bit to drink. Okay. And, uh, or, or, and then maybe a little more to drink. And so there would, be, there would be times when I'm driving home from a club, I traveled with P&G, maybe down in Miami or whatever, when th things and would that's happen. Procter I and Gamble. Through, I'd go through highway signs because I fell asleep on the road. I was drunk. Mm -hmm. And another time in Indianapolis, uh, I went out Friday night, went drinking and got up the next day, couldn't find the car. Spent all weekend looking for the company car, knowing full well I can't call Procter and Gamble and say, <laughs> You know, I lost the car. I don't know what happened to it. It walked Boy. away. And then another time I drove into a bus barn. Uh, in, in Cincinnati, people would go across the river into uh, Kentucky to go to these clubs where you could, uh, where you could uh, dance and stuff. Well, one night I, I came back home alone and I'm, I had too much to drink. And I drove into an underground bus barn at 60 miles an hour. Oh my god! This doesn't look right at all. So, oh my god! So that's totally irresponsible. Had I ever had an accident, or had those signs I plowed through in North Miami ever been re reported to Procter and Gamble? I mean, there were eight police cars there. If that had ever, if I'd been arrested and that had been reported, uh, I would have been fired. P and G doesn't keep people around that are irresponsible and go out and get drunk. So I wasn't a, a jackass as a person, but I had those uh, bad habits. And I think I was selfish also. Um, and one guy said, you're an elitist. And I oh. thought, I thought, gee, that's hanging around people that are smarter than me and more accomplished. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, I, I think I asked him, well, what's the matter with being an elitist? That's just hanging around good people. But I know what he meant. He meant that uh, that I only wanted to hang around with a certain group of people uh, and didn't, you know, didn't want to be around what you call the hoi polloi or whatever, have a critical view of other people who weren't accomplished. And I probably, I probably did. And so that continued. Uh, and when I got a new car, I spent way beyond my means. So I was one of those people that were calling every night for their money. 
you know, mm -hmm. from credit cards. And I went through every credit card you can imagine. So that happened in Cincinnati where I was for seven years and then wanted to move to a city I would enjoy more. I think I was a West Coast guy. So I moved to San Francisco. And my first day on the job there, I had my car repossessed oh. when I was with my boss. We were out calling on a company called Clorox in East Bay, mm -hmm. come out to the parking lot, the car isn't there. He said, what happened to your car? And I said, well, I knew he was gonna ask me every day what happened to my car, so I, I'm not gonna be able to lie about it. And I don't like to lie anyway. So I said, well, I think it's been repossessed. So that long taxi ride back from Clorox to our office in downtown San Francisco, he was probably wondering, uh, is this guy the right choice for our company? Hmm. You know, first day on the job, I learned he's irresponsible. I mean, totally irresponsible. So uh, that's where I was. And, and that's why when I wrote my book um, in the past, I guess it was published last year and I wrote it over three years. Can you uh, hold it up for those who are watching no. on YouTube? I uh, look back. There we go. A fool's errand. Yeah. Excellent. A must read. Thank you, Roy. Yeah. Go ahead. As I look back, I, uh, I thought that I was a jackass, you know, that I was irresponsible. And, and I, I would just call myself in the book a loser. Now, had you approached me during that time and said, you know, you pretty much live the life of a loser, I would have fought you verbally tooth and nail. I would, you know, nobody likes to have their life shredded. And said, this is what, what I see you are. Well, I can see myself now. And I think it's because I was able to make changes later that I never, I didn't later view myself as a loser. So it's a lot easier to look back and say, well, at this point, Roy, you're going to have to be, you're going to have to come face to face with it. You were a loser. Now you worked at a good company. You got a you worked at, you got an education in engineering, physics, and math, and I earned good money all during that time. But I spent all of that. So, um, and you left Procter and Gamble. I had read because there was some kind of an ethical thing going on where you didn't feel that what you didn't feel whatever was going on was ethical. So therefore, that was another that was another company. That was the next one. Procter okay. & Gamble, I have nothing but good things to say about it. Okay, were, I stand to be corrected. I apologize so then. They're an extremely ethical company. But later on, um, I worked for a company where they tried to cheat me in, in San Francisco. I worked for them for five years and I quit on the spot. They, they, they did something unethical. Okay. And then I found another company in New York based. And in 1993, which was like, 18 years later, something like that. The management of that company said they, they might have to take a court trial. They asked me to lie on a deposition. Oh. Now these guys are all in New York. I'm in San Francisco. So I had no involvement in whatever they were talking about. And that caused me to have panic attacks at night, maybe two mm. or three times a week. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, always after a half an hour of sleep. And I'd go, <gasps> I can't breathe and I have to run up over to the window and throw open the window. And I was in a high rise, so I'm breathing that fresh air off the Pacific oh my Ocean. Gosh. Come rolling into San Francisco in the fog and stuff. And I, uh, 
that drove me crazy because in my wife because she thought and i thought well maybe one of these times i'll die i learned later uh from a uh, so i went i went to visit all kinds of medical people heart people and everything and finally went to a psychiatrist and he said what's going on in your life and none of the others had answers and uh, and i told him and he said stop i know exactly what the problem is uh, you're a highly ethical guy, Roy, and you're working for an unethical company and you, your mind and body can't live with that. So you're, and you're doing very well there, you're earning good money and you don't want to be forced to leave. And, and I told him I didn't know of any other options in San Francisco that were quite like that. I mean, I, I had a hell of a job, cars taking me everywhere and drivers mm. and first class flight. So I, I enjoyed it a lot and I didn't notice that they were unethical. They, they seem like ethical guys to me. But sometimes you only find that out when the chips are down. Yes. You find out, my God, yeah. these guys don't have any problem lying or anything. Mm -hmm. And one, one of the owners of the company, um, it's pretty small, probably six or seven people. And they worked in packaged goods marketing. So they were dealing with my old company, Procter mm -hmm. & Gamble and Frito-Lay and so on in their marketing. Um, they were, they were very good people, but they weren't under that kind of pressure very often where, where they had no problem lying or whatever. And there was enough money involved. You know, when enough money's involved, my experience, I'm a little cynical. My experience is that most people that I've known in my life, if enough money's involved, will shade the truth. I, probably, I would agree with you. Probably lie um, out, outright. I don't like to think about that. I don't view most people that way. So I'm only viewing the people that are in, maybe in that field where a lot of money is at stake. So um, he explained that to me. He said, you're in an untenable situation, Roy. Now you can stay there and hope that you will soften or, or you can try to talk them out of this. I'm not gonna do this. But uh, he said, I'm listening to what you've said about them, I don't think that's gonna work. And so at that point, I had to sit there and say, well, I'm going to have to leave. And, um, and I thought I would just get another job. That was my nature. I didn't know many entrepreneurs. But one of them did say this to me. The, I said, why are you an entrepreneur? He said, because um, I, uh, I don't like to live with other people's mistakes. I mm. want to make my own. And I thought, God, that's twice I've had to leave companies because of an unethical behavior after, you know, spending years there, the first company five years and the second 18 years. So uh, this guy said, you know, you could become an entrepreneur. And an entrepreneur basically looks at opportunities out there and tries to find something that's unfilled and then fill it. And I was able to find something. My whole career, I was in an, a, a kind of an area of marketing with Procter & Gamble and then later working with companies that provided them with this kind of service, working on new products. Um, I realized I knew as much about that particular area as anybody in the country. And so I, I met another guy who knew about this area and there wasn't a company in the field. And we started this company. And uh, and I knew one thing, it was gonna be ethical because my partner was ethical. And if you're the owners of the company are ethical, it's an ethical company. You know, I wasn't gonna to have to worry about me being unethical. 
Um, so, and then 11 years later, I retired. Uh, also, by the way, at the same time I was working on my core values, the same time when all this happened in 1993, when I was waking up in the middle of the night, and uh, there, there are hundreds of values, but I found 11 that were core. And uh, I studied the work of two men, one everybody knows, Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of mm. Highly Effective People. That's this book. It's one of yes. the best-selling books in business. The Habits of Highly Effective ever. People. I yes. don't know how many copies, somewhere around 30 million copies were sold. And then the other book is his partner, uh, Hiram Smith. The Power of Living, Your Values, What Matters yeah. Most. And this is the book I got most out of, even though most people know about Covey and they're the, they're the ones that they go after. So I, I found my core values and there were 11 of them. And that meant that all of the other values that are out there, two or three, I didn't have to honor them or worry about them. I just focused on the, those 11 values. I like what they say about your book in the words you say, actually, of Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living. No. Your book, A Fool's Errand, is your indispensable guide to self-examination and value-oriented living. You will learn what core values are, how to discover them, and how to use your values to make wise goal choices. You don't need life hacks. All the tools you need are already inside you. I, I uh, found that very, very uh, helpful. You know, all the tools you need are already inside you. They are. And, uh, and I'll tell you another thing. If, I, if you were to go, go down the street of any city in the United States, and say to somebody, who are you? Do you know who you are? And they, they'd start spouting off, well, uh, about their wife, their kids, their job, mm. and uh, that they play golf and so on. And I, I'd have to go like a stop, stop, stop. That is not who you are. That's what you do. I asked who you are. Uh, who you are are your values. And my experience from teaching this, um, and mentoring this to individuals every now and then is that there are hundreds of values, but each of us have 10 to 20 internally. They probably were there since birth. Now, if you wonder, well, who's Roy Cook to tell me that? Well, how about Stephen Covey? He said that, and so did his partner, Hiram Smith, and they taught it for years. So you but think there's a both, genetic component to the values and yeah, morals? I well, agree. I, I okay. don't know why that's there, but there, there are, things that will uh, that you know that always bother you that don't bother somebody else mm. typically it's become a, because of a core value if you um stephen covey said this if you know your core values and you live uh, and so did hiram smith they both said the same thing mm. and you live your life according to those core values which means every day you make decisions based upon your core values you will live a fulfilled life which means happy and have freedom. And they never said this, although uh, Covey died. And I couldn't talk to him, but I did talk to Hiram Smith and met him at his uh, retirement home in Southern Utah, a stunning place. Um, I asked, what about financial independence? 
because I found out that when I fo focused on my values, 11 years later, I was able to retire being financially free. And he said, well, Covey and I found that. We just didn't put that in the book. Uh, you so also there's three things you get. You get freedom, fulfillment, and I believe financial independence. Okay. But freedom and fulfillment is enough. Wow, that's powerful stuff. And so I also, at that point, one of my values was spirituality. I developed a spiritual life. And a whole, a whole bunch of things changed in my life. I, I no longer had any financial problems. Before, no matter how much money I earned, I spent more. So... So in your interview with Drew Applebaum from the author hour, you say each day when you get up, before you decide to do something, you ask the question, does this honor my core values? If it doesn't, you don't do it. That's right. Give us an example of a core value. Um, I'll tell you what. I've got them listed here. Okay. I'm going to rattle them off very quickly. Yeah, I have them here too, but I'd rather hear you say them. Okay. This is in order of importance Okay. to me. And then I'll, then I'll give you an example of just pick one or two or whatever. Okay. Spiritual, family, health, integrity, value-based life, community. What I mean by that is give back, community. You can mean a lot. These are kind of code words that you might, well, what do you mean by community? I mean, giving back. Okay. Freedom. And by that, I mean financial independence. Accomplishment. Learning and teaching. I put those together. Resoluteness and renewal. Renewal is refreshing yourself. That's a hard one to come up with a good word. I like renewal. But it means... Um, like you can watch a movie on Turner Classics and some, and you can be honoring your core value. You say, how can you be doing that? You're wasting time watching a movie. Well, if you were renewing yourself, if, if it was a, uh, a, a, a an old film that you really liked, um, like playing tennis or laying in a hammock mm -hmm. in your backyard, that could be renewing or just taking a walk. So we renewal. would refer to that as self-care. Yes. Okay, and so I taking everybody care. Everybody probably has that value somewhere inside. We all need refreshment. But if I were to back up to this, I, I wrote definitions for every one of them and I kept fine tuning them. Um, mm. So if um, let's just take health, it says I am strong, energetic, and alert. I'm flexible and fit. I eat a balanced diet to have energy, skill, uh, prevent cancer, and control weight. I, I have daily prayer for guidance and peace of mind. I exercise to sharpen the saw, aerobics for energy, fitness and alertness, and to walk and move without fatigue, strength training for a strong back and fewer injuries, stretching for flexibility, fewer injuries, fewer aches and pains, and forestalling aging issues, and yoga for strength, balance, mm. and flexibility. So three times a week, I spend two hours doing uh, aerobics, um, strength training, and yoga, an intermediate class in yoga, which is tougher than hell. You're doing that now? Yeah, at 80 and years of age. So. I, I was getting, yeah, and our audience needs to know that you are 80 years old and you haven't missed a beat. 
you are doing things physically, emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, probably better than you did. The, the thing I've noticed when you get older, you uh, when you're younger, you fatigue, but you get your energy back in a couple of hours. You're ready to roll. Uh, when I was a kid, I'd play basketball on, on a, in a playground that was covered by snow all day. I could be there for eight hours, go home and have lunch, come back. I, I can't uh, do that now, especially after an inter intermediate class in yoga, which I think is uh, tough. But it gives me three things that older people like I need. Uh, flexibility. Uh, strength and balance okay. you add, part of that is, is is balance so um so that's why i'm going to start one of my days with that because that's a core value i also have in here learning and teaching so i'm reading a lot last year i read i don't know 56 books and they were all serious books mm. meaning i don't read any light stuff i, I read things that i'm interested in and that's um uh, great books, great books of Western Civ or, or history or bi biographies or historical novels or whatever. Um, so when I go to, um, you know, Cairo or someplace in Spain, I've, I've read about the background there. And I like that. Now, if somebody else didn't like that, that would be a burden for them. But, but reading uh, covers every possible subject on earth. So you can definitely find things that are of interest. And I, if you read about people that are successful, they will say, you read to learn. I read that, that learn, you had said that, yeah. You don't learn just from your experience. If you learn from your experience, you've got one person to learn from. If you read, you learn from hundreds of people and you can reflect on that. <clears throat> So I want to bring it around. So you you had and, and you also say that you have everything already inside of you. But what happens is you were able, there was a turning point in your life where you were looking at where you were, you had the education, you had the job, you had the money, but where moving forward, how how you changed your thinking and behavior was going to affect whether your life was gonna have meaning and right. be successful or not. So going back to the core values, I wanted to say, you, you were quoted as saying, you do what Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, 1976, right, says, say no. Steve Jobs said, yeah. successful people say no to most things. Yeah. Then you also um, talk about the Wizard of Omaha, the broker billionaire Warren Buffett. All the very success, I'm sorry, all the very successful people he knows say no to almost everything. That takes a lot of willpower to do, but if you're doing core values, that's what you're doing. So another definition of core values would be, would you say is our belief systems? Yeah. Our but it's moral, internal. Internal. It's internal. We don't okay. develop. We, you don't. You don't listen to like this podcast, for example, and say, "Well, I want Roy's core values." That doesn't work. Uh, my book shows you how to find your ten to fifteen core values, and it's it isn't okay. difficult. But um, you won't meet many people who have done it. it. It it doesn't take a lot. It just takes somebody pointing you in the right direction. So 
Till I'm 53, I'm living a life without a lot of direction. I'm out in San Francisco having fun. I'm hiking and traveling occasionally. I'm earning pretty good money, but spending most of it. Um, but only after 93, so 41 from 93 is 52, yeah. So only when I'm 52 does my life begin to have meaning. So that every decision I make during the day is based on a core value. If it doesn't fit with one of these things, I don't do it. I, I, want, I have a friend once who we were talking about people that lie and he says, well, everybody lies. And boy, I had a problem right then mm. because I, I didn't want to exercise my ego, but I did. And I, so I said, I don't. I said, now up until 53, I couldn't have said that. But I have a core value of integrity and it says, I am honest, accountable, reliable. I conduct my affairs such that I am truthful. I can be depended upon. I'm a man of my word and worthy of trust. I reminded myself of that. I know it sounds ridiculous to say that I'm not setting myself up as somebody special. I'm just saying I don't lie anymore. I just don't lie. I don't think it sounds ridiculous. It's a core value, like you said, of you, and it's your belief system. That's yeah. how you navigate the world. What happened at age 53, Roy? What well, that was, the, that was the time when this other company said, we want you to, uh, they didn't say lie, but we're, we're going to ask you to sign a deposition. And then the guy added, I know you're an honest man, Roy, but this is business. It was as though business was outside my realm of living. Right. And that's when I started to get panic attacks and the psychiatrist put two and two together <coughs> and said, uh, this is your problem, Roy. You're going to yeah. be forced to do, do something and live in a way that you the don't Incredible pressure and panic attacks. People, one of the hallmarks is they come out of nowhere. There's, there's usually a trigger, whether it be unconscious or something in the environment or a situation like you went through where you were asked or maybe even pressured into doing something that was against everything you're all about. Now, tell us and about- By the way, the panic attacks went away. After yeah. you had made the After decision to leave them. To yeah. An entrepreneur and had a new yeah. challenge. That might not have worked out. It just so happened that that there was an unmet need mm. in helping major manufacturers introduce no, new products like Frito-Lay and Coke and uh, Pepsi and Kraft. <clears throat> that happened to work out. But I was lucky. A lot of entrepreneurs, their first shot out mm. of the cannon, it doesn't work out. Um, so I was fortunate because I was late in life. Uh, I, I would not have wanted to start over in my early 60s or something like that. So that was an amazing period of time from 53 to 62 when I accomplished my lifetime financial goals and found core values. The core values changed my life. You know, and so I think it's so incredible that our you know listeners hear that that happened in what we refer to in our culture, midlife. Yeah, you, me too. It's kind of like compressed. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and that's what's so phenomenal. And then you put it in a book to teach the rest of us how to accomplish this and maybe even start it at an earlier age. Yeah, a I lot want, of people that are more successful at a younger age. And I just wasn't, you know, I'm plodding along till I'm 53. So it, it wasn't I, your I time. wish I had yeah. discovered that earlier. But yeah. um, Talk to well, us about young Roy, you as a boy. I, I want to know where you were born, raised, your okay. parents. Did you have siblings? What were a, your interests? 
I have a sister and had uh, two parents. Uh, they had a happy marriage, no divorces or anything. They were wonderful parents, um, I felt. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I was very shy um, socially, uh, even in high school, I was that way. And even when I got to college, I, uh, I wanted to be as comfortable as other guys were in dating or asking women mm. out. And so um, I had to resort to something where I said, listen, <laughs> here now, 18, you still are shy around women, still have a problem asking them out and trying to get up the courage. I remember if I had a date and took a woman back to her house, I would completely denude all the shrubbery on her front porch, trying to get up the courage to kiss her goodnight. <laughs> Sorry. And, and I picture her, her father, you know, oh sitting God. there watching me and looking at the shrubbery and all I'm pulling off all this stuff just as a nervous head. So habit. you were anxious at, so, at a very young age. Were you ever bullied? Did you get bullied? No, I don't I don't remember that part, but I, I pictured her, her father singer, by the way, just to complete that thought, said, Listen, why don't you either kiss this jackass or just say goodnight? You don't have to stand out there for 45 minutes while he gets the courage. To, um, that's what her father said. Well, that's what I pictured him saying. Oh, okay. You know, because he's he said, "What's the matter with him? For God's sake, you want me to take him aside?" And uh, so, and I didn't know how to dance, and so I had to do. So one of the things I did in college to to teach myself a lesson is I had this calendar put out by the student union, and I made a uh, I made a deal, a bet with myself. Said, "You have to have a date every day." Now, this can be a study date, you know, a Coke date or study date, you know, it takes an hour. But uh, in some days I'd have three. So I, I, I had a date oh every God. day. Three in a every, day? Every day. Now, and if I didn't get a date, I mean, I'm sure there are times when I didn't, but then I'd have to try in the morning to recover if somebody canceled. Because <laughs> I didn't want to make a rule. Well, I had a date, but she canceled. So it should still count as a date. And after a while, even a guy as dumb as I was and as shy, I I was confident, you know. And uh, so, with dating, what was a core value for you? You know, if I were to if I were to look back, that, that's a good question. Let, let me let me look at these. I've yeah. never I've never thought about that where that fit in. I mean, in my life, it fit in because I just thought. Do you want to live alone the rest of your life? Mm. Do you want to be uncomfortable around women? You know, I would ask, you know, what door do you open for them? When do you take their coat off? And when do you give them the... You know, so you were very detailed, methodical. You have a very type A in many aspects. Probably. Yeah, I said, personality. How, how, do I, what, how do I do all this and I'm uncomfortable where I'm, I get out of the car and start to walk in the restaurant <laughs> and she's waiting for me to open the door. Did you, you know, have so a panic I, attack before you picked up no. your date? Oh, good. No, I never, I never had that. Let me see. Learning and teaching, Rosa Lunas. Well, one, one thing is family. You're not going to have a family if you don't get off first base. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to meet a woman, and, and have any kind of relationship with them. Uh, and I realized that that was an important part of my life. There were other things I was focusing on, like traveling and climbing mountains and stuff. But, but this one was a big one. Unfortunately. Um, you know, I was able to work through it. I mean, right. one time a fraternity brother came to me and said, 
uh, I talked to so-and-so who you dated last week and she said uh, that she never wants to see you again. Date <laughs> you again. So this came through from a fraternity brother. Um, you know, my reaction could have been, well, what a guy you are to do that. You should tell her to do her own handiwork, you know. But so, so oh I had all those, I had all those embarrassments. I mean, you know, for a guy 18, 19, that's tough. So a woman, one of the leading women in, in the college, you know, a, probably a varsity cheerleader type and who says she's not interested in you anymore. And uh, How were you different than other kids or, or other adolescents or young adults? How were you different? Well, I saw, I didn't drink at all in college and, uh, <laughs> and the guys that I was around were, you know, if you're in a fraternity, they're drinking uh, all the time. And they were more social than I was. So they are dating. But also, I didn't want to date just anybody. I just, there's a woman who I am not attracted to at all that I'm going to date or just have a date. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to only date women that I had an attraction for. Um, you know, I wanted to have fun like other, like everybody else did, to be able to go out and uh, and overcome that um, that fear, whatever the hell it is. Maybe it was a fear of failure, being turned down, mm. or just that I was socially uncomfortable around them. Were you, you know? were you socially uncomfortable as a young boy? Yeah. So yeah, did I, you, oh wait, your earliest memory, Roy, how old were you when you realized that you were a little uncomfortable socially? You know, you know, I'm not very good at that. In fact, I've commented to people, if you were to, if I, you were to ask me, name one thing that happened in your life before you were 16, just, all you have to do is tell me the year. I couldn't do it. Okay. Because I, yeah, I, I know some things that happened. I don't know what year they happened. But I, just in looking back, I was a shy little guy. And, um, and so I didn't develop social skills. I think I was probably, I was a nice person. I wasn't mean or anything, and I had a lot of interest, but I was shy. And you either put yourself out there or you don't. Mm. You know, if you're not gonna be part of the group and socially double, double date or go to dances, um, you know, in college, I had to find a woman who was willing to teach me to dance. Okay. What would you tell other young people today who are very socially shy or have some social anxiety what would you tell them in relationship to your book, Fool's Errand? You know, I'd, uh, that's a tough one. I'm not sure what I would, well, after they've done their core values, if one of their core values is family or something like that, then okay. the message is, if they feel that that's a value of theirs, as you can see, some of these are probably values of everybody. Probably everybody has a value, not, not spiritual, but family, probably almost everybody does. Probably almost everybody has a health value. Not everybody has an integrity value. There are lots of people who are very comfortable lying. Um, and community, not everybody wants to give back. And okay. not everybody wants to be financially free. I mean, feel that that's a, a driving value within them uh, or learning or teaching. I, I know a lot of people that don't want to teach. I, I be believe those two things come together. I do, I do teach, I'm not a teacher but I teach at a, a local college. Wow. Uh, I've taught core values over there at that, at that so college as I, well as great books. 
where we each will read a great book and discuss it, one of the 100 greatest books ever written. So I have an interest in that, but a lot of people won't be. But I'll, I'll bet they have an interest in family. Uh, even if they're gay, they have an interest in family. So they probably want to develop some social skills. Okay. But the only way that I did it was brute force. You know, in college, it's, it's getting late, Roy. You're 18. You want to get out of college, start working. And, and here you're in a perfect playground. You walk out into campus. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that women that are young at 18 or 19 at campus are in the are in the bloom of their beauty often. You know, they, they look great. You know, there's no extra weight for the women or guys. They're all in a kind of a perfect world. I, I got to say, one of the things I love about you is you just put it out there. You're so candid. Now, yeah. I want to circle back. So so I don't have an answer for them other than if they want to get the calendar and do what I did, if they have the guts to do that. That means that they're, they're going to fail. They're going to have times when they fail, they just keep going. And then if they're around people, if they don't know how to dance and that makes them, it makes them unable to go to dances, find somebody, a guy or a woman that'll teach them to dance or hire somebody that'll do it. Okay. Uh, and um, anyway, that's, I, I don't and think if I'm so, I seem like I'm interrupting a lot, I have so many questions and I know you okay. have a very important meeting and we had limited time. So thank you for your patience. I want to circle back to emotion. And we talked about in the beginning how in your mid 30s, I mean, you were selfish. You were taking advantage of women financially when you were dating so stere the stereotype of a mathematician, engineer, physicist is that, you know, that type of brain has difficulty with social elements and dimensions mm -hmm. and relationships and, and tends to navigate even, you know, what some people would say with a lack of empathy or a lack of emotional or social intelligence. So how do you, Roy Cook, navigate emotionally now versus before you established the core values and really took a look at your life? So that's before good, and after. That's a good question. Before I answer that, you, you hit a key word where you said empathy, <laughs> lacking empathy. I did lack empathy. And when I moved to San Francisco at 29, excuse me, my throat is dry. No, um, you take, take your time. I took some testing because I wanted to find out what my skills were and what I needed to work on. Okay. This guy comes out of the room and he says, so, so let's see, this is, I am about 29. Yeah, that's about right. Maybe 20, 29. And he says, you lack empathy. And being young and insecure, I'm immediately launched into my own defense. What do you mean by that? I care about people. I care that this person's suffering. And, so, and he says, no, 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 Roy, you have sympathy. You don't have any problem with sympathy. You don't have empathy. And I said, well, what the hell does that mean? He said, exactly my point. You don't even know what it means. So okay. I, I, I learned that you can develop empathy in life. I, I thought, well, I don't have empathy. You know, God didn't put it in my basket, you know, the, the little empathy egg, or whatever. But I found out you can develop empathy, and I have it. Now to answer your question, um, 
How, well, let me interrupt you though. This is important. How how did you learn to develop empathy? Because a lot of individuals would, I'm sure, love to know that. Well, through it, it's, it was a core value of mine to have you know community, which means giving back. But you're you're not going to be giving back unless you're involved with people. Okay. If you're involved with causes and stuff, you're you're dealing with people that have needs, and uh, hmm. um, I just I just worked on that and felt that was important to have. Also, really late, uh, so this is a little unfair. It wasn't early, but really late, I started meditating, hmm. and the one the primary benefit of meditation, as far as I'm concerned, is empathy for other people. Really? Now, very few people talk about that, but the, the people that I talk okay. to that are heavily into meditation agree with that point. Okay, um, so I have to ask you, because for me, when you say meditation, my, my mind goes to Tibetan monks. And, you know, emotion is kind of isolated, and I, I don't have enough knowledge to discuss it intelligently. But so you're saying through meditation, you've developed more empathy. Yeah, I think that's the number one trait. And I've talked to people that are in that field and they agree with it, although you, I don't see that discussed broadly. Hmm. In my case, empathy means, um, although they, they don't say this, I have an app called Headspace. Yes, yes. It costs probably 80 bucks a year. And I love that app. And so I'm now at 15 minutes of meditation from this, uh, I forget if he is an Aussie, has an interesting accent. Um, and I just play it and close my eyes and I lay in bed longer. And he's always talking about sitting up and everything, but I do it in bed. So I do, see, is it 15 or is it 20 now? I think it's 15 minute meditations every day. And the benefit of doing that over the years, now I've done this for maybe four years, let's say five years, three years, I'm not sure, is that I care more about other people. Hmm. So it has helped me close the loop on something that I didn't even have at 29, that is empathy. I even care more about animals and I've lost my fear of animals, like getting on a horse or whatever. Oh, uh, wow. And I don't know why that is, but I, but you know, my wife and I live on a farm here in Northern California. We're, we're urban people, except for now. I've always lived downtown San Francisco in a high rise or Cincinnati in a high rise. I've never lived in the suburbs or, or rural and didn't want to live rurally, but she came from here and we got fed up with San Francisco, with the politics in San Francisco, even though it's such a wonderful city. I still feel that way. So, um, Anyway, so, so I just focused on this because it was one of many things I felt I needed to work on. And I wanted to see this meditation work for me. And initially it didn't. And initially I couldn't keep my mind focused on nothing until you know, the guy on Headspace gives you permission. So that's hmm. okay to let your mind wander. It's okay. Just bring it back calmly. Don't force it to come back. Just like a feather. Um, you're looking for the blue sky again with, with peace, with no uh, funny thoughts running through your mind, but they will run through your mind. And so uh, I've, I've developed my feeling for other people and for animals. And, and I, I think 
or when I'm more relaxed. And I think the things that um, my wife is uh, grew up on a farm, and so we're back to an old farmhouse where she used to mm -hmm. grow, grow up. She's a hard worker, does everything. And I used to be pretty selfish. I didn't want to do any chores or anything. She'd probably say if she came in here, you still don't do well, anything. What is your wife's name? Bernice. Bernice. We're going to do a shout out to Bernice. Okay, right. so that, that actually brings me to my next question. Well, well let me finish up. So now okay, I, I apologize. Doing those errands. I, okay. I just, everything that was an errand before was a pain in the rear, and I was selfishly not going to do them or trying to avoid them. You know, I could cloak it whatever I wanted when I ran like, well, I've got more important things to do. I'm running a company that's bringing in a lot of revenue. That was just an excuse. So now, for whatever reason, I enjoy doing these things. I enjoy, we've got three cats. So I enjoy doing messy things that involve cats and all of this. I don't know how that came about. It may have come from having a more uh, serious spiritual life or whatever. But... I can say that there are unexpected benefits of following your core values. Mm -hmm. It's foolish to not do that. It's absolutely foolish. These values were put inside you over there. So you all, everybody who's listening to this has 10 to 20 of them. And you may be wrong on a couple of them because you want to have a core value. You know, you want to have a core value of empathy, mm -hmm. but you don't have it. Well, you'll adjust over time. You'll find out that isn't my core value. It just made, it sounded good to me. But you'll be right up front on a bunch of them. And without reading my book or studying this, if I were to ask you your core values and give you a list of 200, if you had 15, seven of them would be wrong. If you, if you picked 15, seven would be wrong. Hmm. Because there's some tests in my book that you can give yourself. Um, it can be as simple as a long walk and thinking about the things you love in life. Um, I was right on most of mine, uh, but there were some that I wasn't sure of. Well, you got a lifetime to get it right. You know, if you're wrong Good on point. two or three of them, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you think one sounds like something you'd like to do, uh, but it isn't really for you, you'll, you'll find out later. Um, and then when you start doing this, everything you do in life, everything you do in life, every decision you make will be based upon a core value. Now, where did meditation came in, come in? That came under health. Hmm. I mean, what, what, what could be a, a better thing to do for your health than to meditate other than even right. better than maybe exercising? Uh, I mean, you know, working out in the gym. <coughs> So talk to us about Roy and love. How did you know Bernice was the one? How did you know you were in love? How did you well, navigate towards having that? That's, that's a weird one. So I'm, ah. I'm, date, I'm dating in San Francisco and I'm, I don't like uh, cute or pretty. I like sexy, Sophia Lauren. So that's all mm. I want to do. All Sophia I want to Loren, do wow. Yeah, she's one of my sexy. favorite actresses. Okay. So, uh, so I'm I'm dating, and I have no interest in getting married. I'm just dating. I'm here. I'm in San Francisco, and uh, let's see, 41 to 71 is 30. So I'm 30, and uh, I meet Bernice at a bank. If somebody hadn't told me I'm griping about a large bank, I'll just say Bank of America. It's too too big. 
And there was a woman who was from France who was working uh, in the, for the company I was working for. And she said, I've got a bank for you, the Chartered Bank of London. I thought, gosh, that would look good on my checks. You know, so still the ego was not in control. <laughs> so I go in there and here's Bernice sitting right there. Great, big, beautiful smile. And she's sexy. And so I ask her out. I call her up. Somehow I got her home number. Talk for 20 minutes, ask her out. And at the end of that time, she says, no. She doesn't say anything else. Later, she learned. So I never say anything else, Roy, because men will always attack that. Well, I'm not talking about marrying you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about a date. You know, well, you know the way guys are. Um, so I talked to somebody at this uh, bank where I was <coughs> playing uh, tennis with. And he said, well, she's almost married to this Greek guy who owns a bunch of restaurants and stuff. I said, oh, well, that, okay. But if, if she ever stops, let me know. So three or four months later, he says, she's not dating this guy anymore. And um, so I call her up, have another delightful conversation of 20 minutes, ask her out. She says, no. So I say to myself two things. Okay, I don't like to keep calling. I'm, the, I'm not the kind of guy that says, well, how about Monday night? How about Tuesday night? I mean, please, you've got to have a little integrity. So I, I said to myself, uh, okay, either she doesn't like me or she doesn't have the social skills to tell me I'd like to see you sometime, call me some other time. Either way, I'm not interested in her. I mean, she doesn't even have the social skills to know how to tell me <laughs> I'd like to see you, uh, but I can't now, you know, call me some other time, you know. How difficult is that? <laughs> so I go back to the uh, guy playing tennis, tennis guy. And I say, well, she definitely doesn't like me. I asked her again. She said, I, I made a mistake. She's still dating this guy. And I said, you imbecile. God, that's twice I put myself out there. And now I don't really know. Is there any hope? And, and so I said, look, I like her. Tell me for sure if she ever stops. So then six months later, he calls and he says, she for sure is broken up with this guy. You're blushing, by the way. I just had to throw that in there. So oh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it involves Bernice. I should be blushing. So, so I call her up. We have a 20-minute conversation. And I ask her out. And she said yes. So I, I asked her out. And we had a good time. In fact, the first date started. I guess I like to get myself in trouble. I said to her, don't, don't worry. I'll have you home by four. And we're... <laughs> Bernice isn't the kind of person who says, you won't have me home by four, you'll have me home by midnight. <clears throat> she just lets that go. If he wants to be a jackass, let him be a jackass. Uh, so we start dating and we never discussed getting married. We just kept dating. And neither of us wanted kids, but we never discussed having kids, which I think is weird. Oh, you don't want kids either. I mean, we never had that discussion. Nor in a movie where you say, oh, that guy doesn't have kids. I don't want kids. So um, we're, we're, we're not married. We're going together. And 24 years later, we get married. Oh, my gosh. And How did I that happen? Out, yeah, I found out since then, 
Well, one time I, I thought well, I'd like to marry her. So we're going to Greece. And so I get a ring and I stick it in the, in the toe of a hiking boot. And then when we get there, I get it out and we're up uh, in, in a dramatic place in Greece with a <laughs> spectacular view. And I ask her to marry me and she says, I don't know what to say. Now, since then I've learned that's the kiss of death. She says, I don't know what to say, that's a no. You know, you can't say yes. So I have to come back and beg them at the jeweler in San Francisco to take it back. You know, she turned me down. I, you know, I spent a lot of money and now I've got the perpetual reminder every the day. The kiss of death. So yeah, the kiss of death. So, uh, and I, as I thought about it, I thought, well, we have this great relationship and it isn't like California, uh, if, if I've got all the money and uh, we split up that I keep the money, you know, it's split down the middle. So there's no financial reason for me to put her in a good situation. You know, she's already in a good situation. And she had a good job. She was a institutional stockbroker, like on Wall Street, mm. you know, the movie wow. Wall Street. And um, except we retired her after a while because I was doing better uh, and she wanted to retire. So um, we just decided it was about time then. And I learned later that Bernice and I guess a lot of other women have known situations where they, um, they don't marry right away, but when they do get married, the relationship goes to hell for reasons that maybe you understand. <laughs> but but I, think I've got, I think I've got one reason. As long as you're not married, it's easy to split up. I mean, easier mm -hmm. split up. But once you're married, you're trapped a little bit by your contract, your agreement. You can, all your friends know you're married. It's not like you just split up, even though you're, you're living together for two or three years, you, you're split up and are breaking a marriage of, of ours. So, so maybe or that's compromising it. a core value, maybe, yeah. of family. So, that, that, so it's an for me, this is an interesting story because I don't know anybody else who would stay together for 24 years and then got married. And so, and that, that happened in, I think, um, 1997. So 107, 17, so it's another 25 years. So we've been together for almost 50 years. Uh, how how but, does Bernice know you love her? I tell her every day without exception. And if I haven't told her that during the day, uh, one of the reasons we have a long relationship is she used to be an institutional stockbroker in San Francisco. To meet New York Times, she had to get up at four. Mm. Well, I've learned since then that everybody like her, they, they never get up later. I mean, a little later maybe, but they keep that habit throughout their life. It's been, you know, it's ingrained. So she gets up at five, I get up at eight. And I think if I were to ask her, we brought her in here. She said, that's one of the reasons we're still together. <laughs> she has three hours without me. Three hours <laughs> of, of peace. And then she goes to bed earlier. She goes to bed at nine and we'll read in there. And I come to bed at 11. I get more sleep than she does. So, uh, so she gets that uh, peace. But if what I haven't told her by the time I get to bed, I get in bed later than her. Uh, I'll tap her on the shoulder and say, I love you, you know. What do you love most about her? Boy, that is tough. I'm, uh, there's so many good things about her. Um, she's, 
romantic, accountable, responsible. Mm -hmm. uh, she's got an endless curiosity. She has the same interest as I do in going to these other countries, trying to understand how the West became dominant. How did that happen? How did the Western world become dominant? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the game isn't over. China may catch us, but how did that happen? Yeah. How did all these things happen? Uh, we both have an interest in, um, I probably have a stronger interest in some of this, but art, uh, jazz, probably 60s rock, classical music, uh, modern dance, ballet, symphony, opera, and we have an interest wow. in history, a strong interest in history. Renaissance couple. And so we go, we're, we match that. We, we, she's gotten up at 3 or 4 a.m. to take classes from NYU on TV about mm. hieroglyphics and stuff like that. Mm. Wow. So she'll dig into a country more than I will. Uh, but, but I dig in pretty deep. Uh, I mean, the countries we've been to and all those ones I've named in that area, the average number of times we've been to those countries is probably five. Uh, all those ones in Western Phenomenal. Europe, all the way to Kazakhstan. So we do have similar interests. She's very ethical. She's very strong-minded. One thing, she, she's much better at making friends than I am. She has many, many, many friends. Uh, and now we're back in her. I don't know what part of that is because she grew up here. But she left here at 20 and didn't come back until she was 50 or something. So uh, she has lots of friends and she has interest in things like on this farm, you know, she's got all kinds of things she's planted that she's had to learn about. She didn't know anything about these flowers and plants and stuff. Um, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's just a remarkable woman. I've never met anybody like her. If I were to <laughs> ask Bernice what she loves most about you, what do you think she might say? I don't know, but I'd be damn interested in her answer, whatever it is, because- A question because to ask. And this, the guy, I mean, you know, I, I'm with her at 30 and 33, and I, I've said many times to her, why did you stick it out? I mean, this isn't the guy, the, the, the guy that got his core values and changed his life and got a spiritual life, cared more about family. This is a guy that was selfish and wanted a whole bunch of women that he did. I used to have lists of them. And she reminds me of that. Oh, wow. Um, so that was uh, 50 and on the- Shout out I mean, again once, to Bernice. I once oh told her, God. I said, you're on your 15th on the list, but you're moving up. <laughs> I mean, talk about a jackass. What a, what a thing to say. And she just had the maturity to just let me be a little boy for a while and not- She not saw you. What? She saw you for who you are. She looked beyond. She yeah. sensed you, she felt thank, you. Thank God for that. Because if you look at those things that I don't even like to repeat, but I mean, that's the definition of being a jackass. You know, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm not like that anymore, but, I, but I, I was that way. So I don't know what she'd say. We've never had the conversation where I said, what, you know, what, why would you have stuck it out with mm -hmm. me? Because at 30, and I mean, I'm doing a lot of exciting things in the city. We're going to opera and all that stuff, but that, that's all surface stuff. Uh, down deep, I mean, that's a period when a guy called me a, a, an elitist. And um, 
um, I didn't have any bad relationships with men or women that I got to know, I don't think, but, but I was, I think I was pretty selfish, very judgmental, extremely judgmental. I think that's how I elevated myself. You know, I'm so, not like that. I'm better than that. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that to anybody, but. So with so the God few only minutes. Knows. Maybe she said, well, I, I saw a flicker of hope in you. You know, that there was a possibility <laughs> you might grow into something. Uh, other than a worm. So I don't know what she'd say. I'd be interested in knowing. Out there. I should go out and ask her. Yeah. In fact, as soon as it's over, I'll probably go and say, I couldn't answer this one question. Well, I know we have, I know you you have an appointment, but in I, I did have a few questions I wanted to ask sure. you about our country, about the world, and uh, about the pandemic, because I found two quotes by you. Uh, to sad but tough thoughts related to the pandemic. And uh, there are ramifications for those we elect to office. And then you said, this may be an extension to number one, which were the ramifications for those we elect to office. But down the road, we may find that much of what was done in New York City, for example, was not done correctly causing far more damage than necessary. Crisis management can have terrible ramifications when done improperly by folks who are not really good managers or inexcusable mistakes can made that are inexcusable mistakes can be made that have far reaching negative consequences. I suspect that is what we will see in the not too far future. I said that stuff. Well, that's what I found. Okay. Well, that's pretty accurate. I don't want to get into political things because no, I... Uh, I know, understand. When I, go, when I get on a ship, I try not to have political... If I take yeah. a cruise or... Because yeah. everybody has a right to their own view and people uh, have, have very... Is the word polemic? They have very strong polarized views to be liberal or conservative. And... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and they're, they, they're not, I've been in groups where they're either all, mostly all liberals, but they could be all conservatives and there's no room for anybody else in that group. You know, that's, that's not a good thing. I mean, if I was gonna get in, I have political opinions, but I don't for a long time watch the news. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I used to do, I used to read and watch it. I may watch a show every now and then, but what would I rather, read about a book among the steps of, uh, of Eurasia and how that whole area was formed in this huge book, or would I rather watch some jackass news show by, by people that have tremendous biases, whether it's on CNN or Fox. So, And thank you for that, because I know it's a, it's a very difficult, especially in this age and time. What would you say... Roy, is the biggest challenge in America for the American people today, overall? Well, I'm not, anybody listening to this should ask the question, and why on earth should we value anything you're going to say about politics? And I would be in that camp. I'm just like everybody else out there. I would say we've got to do a lot better job in electing our uh, people. Okay electing the governors and, and representatives 
and, uh, and all the whole, the whole mess of them. Um, somebody had an idea, which I think would be a good one, if we decentralized all the stuff that's in Washington, D.C. So if you work for the education department, that might be in Omaha and okay. so on. So you don't have all this, these power circles that are there. But uh, there are, on the other hand, a lot of good people that are in politics, you know, on both sides that are well-educated and mean well and so on. Um, there are a lot of uh, bad people too, I think, that are, that are just um, driven by their egos. You see why these people don't retire when they're 80, when they're my age. Mm -hmm. I mean, they should be retired for God's sakes. Well, they and you've so earned the right to be able to say that. You're yeah, 80, they, so you they can so say much that. Power. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but they don't, you know, they, they die in office and stuff. Um, that's all ego in my view. I mean, give somebody else a chance, some other people. I'm, I guess I'm very troubled um, by a lot of things I see in politics, but uh, by and large, the United States still has more freedoms than anywhere else. And that was my next question to you. And your you. chance of success are greater here. If anybody out there, they, whether it's my book or not, but I'll just say, if they can read a book, they've been a jackass since age until they're 53, and then they start to work on their core values because two brilliant people, Stephen Covey and Hiram Smith, talked about how it'll change their life. And, and then it, it did change my life dramatically in about every way it could. Well, I would never be on shows like this. I was just a guy, you know. Um, so, so I, I love the country and there's a lot of places I could live here. And I like the people in the country, mm. uh, especially when you get outside of the political centers. You know, when you move, when you get outside of New York or Washington or San Francisco or LA. The um, biggest asset in America today and being America, being American, I'm sorry, what do you think they are? The biggest asset in America and the biggest <clears throat> asset well, being American. Freedom of speech is probably uh, one of the key things. Um, you're not, you're not going to get in jail in general for that. And secondly, our long, glorious history mm -hmm. with, with battling. I mean, the, some of the people you can think of, like Lincoln, and just go through a long list of, of uh, great leaders, and some that maybe overstepped their bounds a little bit. But we've been very blessed in that regard. This is not the Soviet Union. It is not Syria. It's not China. It's not Egypt. Uh, we're, we're very fortunate here. The things that we've done, uh, the opportunities we've had. Uh, anybody in this country can read my book or a book like it, change their life and become successful without doubt, in my opinion. Maybe they're gonna have to get mentors to help them. Uh, that's a subject we could have taken an hour on. Very few people mm -hmm. look to mentor or to find mentors. And that's a, a shame because there are people out there who will help them. And there is probably no better way to grow than to have a mentor. It's better even than reading. A I lot agree. of my friends don't even read. They don't read. And I'm, I'm going to say, I don't, I don't know how you advance in life without reading. You've got just yourself, for God's sakes. 
to learn from your mistakes. That's a really poor way to, to learn. Um, everybody out there, I mean, all the subjects that I write about in my book uh, uh, have, have champions that have written things, really great philosophies that can help somebody change their life. So I'd say the freedoms that we, political freedoms that we have are another thing that I, um, I appreciate. And I guess you could go on and on. It's a stunningly beautiful country, large country, lots of different populations that think differently. It's an exciting place to live. I, I could be very happy in New Orleans or in Manhattan or in Boston or in Chicago, even parts of LA. Portland's my hometown's off my list now <clears throat> when they try to burn down the town and yeah. still claim there's no problem, you know, so. I've got some problems with the political leadership in Portland, Oregon. What did you well. think of the inauguration? I mean, what am I saying? The inauguration, I'm sorry. The insurrection. Well, uh, I'm a believer that you can demonstrate in March and so on if you do it legally. Uh, I don't like the politics uh, making everything political. Like January 6th, that was definitely a conservative movement to take over the country. I don't believe that. That in every country where there are some, every, every city where there's some liberal things going on, or where there's some fires that are broken out, or, or, or people uh, actually destroyed, that the people that did this, or that played a part, any part of this, are all evil. So I, I think we've gone off the track a little bit here because of our um, political hatreds. And uh, I'm just one person that has that view. I think we'll get back on the track. I think we've had um, some bad leadership. I think a lot of people that are in public office shouldn't be there. And I have a real problem with a lack of ethics by those people who will lie and do anything. They have mm -hmm. affairs, they lie. They, uh, you're not supposed to go to Washington earning <clears throat> whatever they <clears throat> earn their 150,000, 250,000. Even the president only earns 400,000 and leave there with great wealth way beyond your salary. That's not supposed to happen. And that's why people are still there when they're 80, mm -hmm. in my view. They're kings. They're little kings. They're little gods with, with staffs that view them as gods. Your final message to America. If you had to leave a message to our audience, to America, especially related to your book, what might that be? Well, I don't really think I'm qualified to do that. I'll just give you my personal view. Right, your personal view. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but I'm not going to be a preacher or whatever. I'd say we need, God, there's so many, we need to be more understanding of our brethren. We need to make a greater effort to be inclusive in our thoughts and beliefs. And we need to try to strike out any uh, hatreds that we have within us. They don't do any good. You can't live a happy life, a fulfilled life if you're filled with hatred. Come in peace. Yeah. Roy Cook, the renowned Roy Cook. <laughs> Tell us again the name of your book. 
You We're know, looking at it. I have a problem remembering it. Isn't that interesting how that happens? I don't even remember the name of my dissertation, which was a love-hate relationship. Just Roy Cook, a fool's errand. The rest is why your goals are falling short and what you can do about it. You know, interesting enough, I had another title for it, but I yielded to these people because that's what I'm paying them money for. My title was, Do You Know Who You Are? Wow. Because I don't think anybody knows who they are. You know, if you walk <laughs> down the street and ask them, I don't think they can answer that. They'd say, well, you know, here are my kids, here's pictures, here's where I work. I'm a horseback rider, I like to run. I said, that isn't who you are at all. You're giving me some hints. You are your values. You are your core values. Find those and you'll know for the first time who you are. You can live a fulfilled life. As Covey Smith said, a fulfilled, happy life, probably financially pretty well too, although they, they didn't want to put that in their books. But they both felt that they gained financial independence from following those rules. And Covey's where can primary teaching is core values. People don't understand that. They get into all the other stuff he does. Mm -hmm. His primary teaching is about core values. core values. And in my book, I put two quotes in there that leave no doubt about that. Where can people buy the book? Amazon. Amazon. And where I, I can didn't, they... I didn't do a, um, uh, not a verbal book, what do you call it? Uh, uh, and, audio or Kindle? I, I didn't do an audio book. Okay. Uh, I probably should have, but I didn't. So you can buy, um, you know, hardcover, softcover, paperback. And where can people reach you? Or, or you can do, my favorite is, uh, you can get the book so it can be read to you on, you can either read it on your iPad or with Kindle? Pardon? Is that Kindle? Kindle? Yeah, almost okay. everything I do is Kindle. Uh, so okay. that, that's where you can get the book. And it's a year after it's come out, they're pretty inexpensive now. And where can people reach you, Roy? Um, I write a lot on medium.com or have written a lot on medium.com. Medium so I'm on there. You can look up Roy Cook. Okay. You'll see everything I've ever written in the last few years. Uh, you could probably respond to me there. I'm Roy reluctant. Cook, I want to thank you. Sure. Beyond a privilege. You are a legacy. You are precious. And 80 years old, you're priceless. Thank you well, thank so you. much. Thank you, Jody. I've enjoyed this. It's, it's nice to be uh, flattered. <laughs> I call it as I see and, it. And you're pretty good at that. Oh, well, they, but I call it as I see it. I don't have that yeah. reputation of, you know, being, no, oh, nice. No, I call it as I see it. You've earned the right. I've read about you. The book is phenomenal. And thank you for sharing your life story and for helping so many others in America. You take good care. Thank you very much, Jody. Thank you, Roy. Bye-bye. This is Dr. Jody J. DeLuca signing off. Take good care, America. Thank you for listening to Inside America's Minds. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, Inside America's Minds with Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. 
The views, information, and opinions expressed on the Inside America's Minds podcast series and on any other related social media pages are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any third party. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay seeking treatment because of something you have heard on Inside America's Minds or have read on any other related social media pages. For emergency situations, be sure to call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.